You're not ugly, you're just not white, by Nurasara Ahmed. You looked at them and wondered why they were so ugly. You looked closely and could not find the source. Then you realised that it came from conviction. Their conviction. It was as though some all-knowing master had given each one a cloak of ugliness to wear and they had accepted it without question. They had looked about themselves and saw nothing to contradict the statement. Saw, in fact, support for it leaning at them, from every billboard, every movie, every glance. This quote is from one of Toni Morrison's novels, The Bluest Eye, published in 1970. It's set in 1940s Ohio and follows African-American nine-year-old Pecola Breedlove, who uses her dream of having blue eyes to alleviate the suffering of her abusive upbringing. The idea of the story attracted me because it spoke to the much younger version of myself, who grew up British Pakistani in an almost exclusively white town. Cinderella was my favourite Disney princess, Chloe was my favourite Bratz doll, and though it was not something I consciously realised at the time, if you had asked me who the most beautiful people I knew were, I probably would have named the blonde-haired and blue-eyed ones. As to my own beauty, there wasn't even a question of it. By the age of four, I was certain of my own ugliness. I remember recoiling at a picture my friend took of me when we were in reception, thinking I looked hideous, which, in hindsight, was not the case. Upon reading The Bluest Eye, I realised that the similarities between Pecola and I pretty much ended at our shared childhood affinity for blue eyes, however. Pecola's story is specific to her, her family, her race, the time within which she was living. It's also worth noting that Morrison herself wrote that, quote, in trying to dramatise the devastation that even casual racial contempt can cause, I chose a unique situation, not a representative one, unquote. Still, she was exploring answers to questions I had had regarding my own childhood. Why is it that so many non-white, non-blonde-haired, non-blue-eyed little girls want to play with blue-eyed dollies and admire blue-eyed princesses? Why do we yearn for something that is so different from our own reflections? This is something that Morrison unpacks in The Bluest Eye, ceaselessly, profoundly, heartbreakingly. Morrison writes of an ugliness that belongs to the breed loves because they have accepted it. Beauty is a concept that Morrison deftly unravels in the novel, giving it the gravity it deserves, portraying the way it can crush those who do not meet the requirements. Romantic love and beauty, Morrison writes, are probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought. Yet the idea, certainly as far as beauty is concerned, is not a serendipitous one. As Liliana Burkhar notes in her essay on the novel, racialized constructs of beauty have acted as, quote, one of the methods on the basis of which selected groups of people continue to be objectified and constructed as lesser and subordinate, unquote. And so in the context of Western colonialism and imperialism, Eurocentric beauty standards uphold and naturalize the concept of white supremacy. By propagating these standards through every advertisement, beauty campaign and movie screen for years, young girls who do not fit them learn to dislike themselves. And, more significantly, the dehumanisation of black people and people of colour is further perpetuated. As disturbingly relevant as some of the aspects of the novel can feel today, The Bluest Eye was written 50 years ago and is set in a world which existed 30 years prior to that. Some things have changed radically since then one of them being the introduction of the internet and the impact this has had on the media we consume. In 2019, Gia Tolentino wrote an article for the New Yorker called The Age of Instagram Face. She explored the ways in which social media has, quote, supercharged one's propensity to regard one's personal identity as a potential source of profit, unquote. With the help of fillers, filters and cosmetic surgery, the phenomenon of InstaFace has been created. Many women have gradually morphed until their face is fit for your Instagram feed. You know the face, the one adopted by countless Instagram influencers, ex-Love Islanders, and of course, who else? The Kardashians. 
What really intrigued me about Tolentino's article, though, was the allusions made to the racialized aspect of this look. It follows a pattern of rootless exoticism, with, quote, an overly tan skin tone, a South Asian influence with the brows and eye shape, an African-American influence with the lips, a Caucasian influence with the nose, and a cheek structure that is predominantly Native American and Middle Eastern, unquote. I began to wonder what the incorporation of non-European features into modern-day beauty standards means for non-white women. Not much is the conclusion I came to. If Morrison taught us that beauty standards are sustained through the media and the bluest eye, she also taught us that it runs far deeper than that. Maybe social media has made it easier to connect with and celebrate beauty, which is not the Eurocentric standard. But it has also helped commodify non-white features, using them to enhance European women's looks, but not benefit the women who are born with them naturally. The lip filler trend, for example, is not the same thing as a black woman being born with naturally big lips and then being taunted for them. A white woman choosing to grow out a monobrow does little for the South Asian girls who are bullied for their hairiness. Beauty trends will come and go, but when whiteness underpins them, non-white people can never win. However, we can laugh about it sometimes. The reality of being a person of colour who was measured by a scale that is not fit for them manifested itself in a way that was very amusing to me a few months ago on Twitter. On December 13th, 2019, Vanity Fair posted a video to their YouTube channel titled Hassan Minhaj Takes a Lie Detector Test. Comedian Hassan Minhaj is shown a picture of actor Dak Shepard, who apparently rated Minhaj as a 9 out of 10 in looks. The interviewer asks, Does it bother you that he didn't call you a 10? An interesting conversation follows. It takes about a minute and a half and is in no way the focus of the interview, but nevertheless amassed thousands of retweets on Twitter in November of 2020. In it, Minhaj denies that he thinks Shepard should have rated him a 10. The machine says this is a truth. But then, when the interviewer asks, do you know how you would rate him? The interview gets really juicy. Hassan pauses, deliberates, then rates him a 6.57. Harsh, the interviewer says. So, Minhaj elaborates. Dax is part of a thing where, in show business, there's this whole thing of, like, approachable white dudes. Whereas with, like, men of colour, it's like Idris Elba, Henry Goldings, and Malik, or you work in IT. There's no middle, he says. You know how there's a whole class of white dudes who are just like schlubby dudes who just like went to high school with me but now made it in showbiz? There's no like that. You gotta have like the V-taper in your abs if you're gonna be Asian. You gotta be Daniel Day Kim ripped. Like you can't ever have bread or cereal. The interviewer then asks him if he's better looking than ducks. Do I think? Pause. Yes, I'm better looking than ducks, yes. Importantly, the detective says this is also true. The video generated a lot of conversation on Twitter. Responses like, it's true, but I can't believe he said it. The video of Nicki Minaj singing, did I lie into a microphone? And my personal favorite, he answered this as though the machine would kill him if he didn't speak the whole truth. The clip got over 28,000 retweets, which I think is because it's nice to laugh in the face of a system that is tripping you up at every corner, even messing with you when you look at yourself in the mirror. The video is funny, but not all of it is pleasant. It ends with Minhaj adding that yes, he is better looking, but... Quote, I will not get the same opportunities that Dax does. Still, as the man reading his lie detector results and hundreds of replies on Twitter can attest, Minhaj told the truth. And as Morrison said in a 1974 interview regarding black critics and artists in particular, that's our responsibility and in some way we have to do it. I say you must always tell the truth.